Remain meditating, though, and let me read what Swamiji has to say to us in our meditation visualization. He says, Think while working that you are sending waves of light and energy out into the world. It's a very different image we tend to think about working, that I'm balancing the accounts, I'm mowing the lawn, I'm waiting on customers. He says, think behind all of those actions and realize that whatever specific task we're doing, what we're actually doing is we're sending waves of light and energy out into the world. Because we're sending out some vibration, so we might as well make it a consciously uplifting vibration. These are not, however, conquering waves. Try rather to inspire in receptive souls a kindred light and energy. Mentally invite them to join you. It's a beautiful image. Mentally invite them to join you. Whatever task you're doing, however isolated or public your work, however mundane or elevated it may seem to you, feel that what you're actually doing through those actions is you're sending out waves of light and energy that will uplift people from your center to their center, inspire them to join you, join you above all in this practice of light and energy, but if you're also working with a team guiding an enterprise, actually to join you in the work that you're doing. Visualize yourself and all of those with whom you work as diffusing light and energy to the world. Um, Swamiji once said, even though he's not outwardly guiding everyone, Adananda and the leaders and so on, he's always projecting consciousness that we may choose in, tune into if we choose. And he says the part of a leader above all is to project consciousness. So inspire others to be more aware at their own inner center. See all that you do, whether administrative, selling, or creative work, as projections of your energy. Imagine that the quality of that energy is uplifting everyone who needs peace and happiness. And the affirmation, now say it with me. It's a beautiful image for work, isn't it? Changes it completely. Affirmation now is, please repeat after me, I serve others through the work I do. do. Let my energy ever be a channel channel. of thy love and joy to all. I serve others through the work I do. Let my energy ever be a channel of thy love and joy to all. I serve others through the work I do. Let my energy ever be a channel of thy love and joy to all. Om, peace, amen. Okay, we're up to lesson 15, effectiveness as an employer. Of course, what he's really talking about here is how to be a leader. And everybody in every position that they're in needs to know how to be a leader. 
um, because we're always influencing others and we're either influencing them in the best possible way or we're not. And it's uh, an abdication of divine responsibility not to do your best to uplift and lead others. I mean, it's part of um, the fourth stage, the redemption. We can't just merely um, develop these qualities for ourselves. We have to, in some way or another, want to put these qualities out to help other people in the world. And it's not a question of what position you were given in life. It's a question of um, fulfilling our destiny as children of God. God is always trying to lead and inspire us. And if we want to be closer to the divine and be more of an expression of the divine, then we have to be thinking that way. But we have to be thinking in the right way because if we're thinking that way from our egos, instead of being a way to liberation, it becomes a way to greater bondage. But when we think that way not through our egos, then that very act of giving is, is an ego-dissolving action. Actually, on a tape I was listening to, a recording I was listening to of Swamiji, just the other day, I have no idea which one, I sort of have a collection of CDs that just randomly go in and out of my car um, uh, player. I'm sure a lot of you are just the same. Um, and he made a statement in there, which it, it's so fascinating with these teachings, it really doesn't matter how long you've been on the path, And in many ways, it sometimes doesn't even matter how often you've heard Swami give the same lecture. I can listen through the same recordings. And, you know, just different thoughts will strike you. So much of what he says is so deep. You just catch it at a certain point. Well, he was making the statement that people tend to think that ego is a bad thing. He said, but even even Master had an ego. I mean, you have to have an ego. If you don't have an ego, you can't act in this world. You have to have some individualized sense of who you're responsible for. He said, and he was, he was talking about in the context of energization actually and drawing energy through the medulla and having people protest, well, if the medulla is the source of ego, I don't want to be giving any energy there because why would I want to strengthen my ego? And I have to admit, quite frankly, in teaching energization, that's always been a little sort of niggling thing in the back of my mind. And so sometimes when something isn't quite clear to you when you're teaching a class, I, you just kind of skip over it and hope nobody will ever really ask you. So for all these years, I've just been kind of skipping over it because I've never quite really known how to say it. But then he was addressing it very directly. Even a master has an ego. He said, it's not a question of whether you have one. It's whether or not your ego blocks the flow of divine energy. Because the energy has to flow through the ego because you are acting as an individual through a body. But what the, the case of a master is that the fact that it's individually throwing, flowing through his body, through the person of Yogananda, is no interruption to the divine flow. Because he doesn't, he doesn't impose that ego in an inappropriate way on that flow. He just allows it to be the magnet through which that energy is drawn. Isn't that perfect? Which is all the more reason why we have to draw the energy through here. Because if we're not willing to, Um, An excessive preoccupation with self, even to diminish the self, makes you self-preoccupied. That's why Master says, and Swami quotes him in here, we should have have neither a sense of superiority nor inferiority. Often people try to humble by trying to be inferior. But being inferior is just as untrue as being superior. And what we're trying not to be is false. But the fact that we have an, we are individuals and we do act as egos, I mean, I'm sort of looking around here and just even in this 
group of people, there's so many differences of personality and temperament and national origin and first language and all these different things that that make us very individual in the way that we respond to this world. And we um, all of us have different arenas of service. All of these things defined by the ego. We're not just amorphously... Um, you know, uh, flows of a river without without shape. But the question is how perfectly we allow the divine to express through the particular vehicle that we have become. And that's why Master was a perfect channel. But, you know, there's a quality of consciousness to that work that is just very distinctly Swami Kriyananda. It's not even exactly Yogananda. That doesn't mean that it's not an expression of Yogananda, but it's an expression of Yogananda through Kriyananda. But the point is not that it comes through him. The point is that his egoic self doesn't block that energy. So in that same sense, when we're talking here about being leaders and being willing to serve the world, we can't just say, oh, no, not me. What do I have to give? Because that's allowing the ego to block the flow. And, and too much, just, oh, I can't do it, I really can't do that, that's not for me to do, is not really making you closer to God, it's actually setting you apart. Why couldn't he work through you? The only thing that prevents him from working through you is your own belief that he can't. It's a very, very, very important lesson, and that's why over and over again through the years, and, you know, it's, it's not a... Uh, an incidental or a small thing from Swamiji that he's accomplished so much and so often talks about his accomplishments through the years. Again, I've often said this to you all. With Swamiji, I've tended not to react, or at least not to react too much, especially not in more recent years, to things that he does. But sometimes I become intrigued by the things that he does. And many times over the years, he stood in front of groups of people. He stood in this very sanctuary and, and and given us a list of all that he's done recently and then I wrote these songs and then I wrote a play and then after that I did a book and then I went off and did a lecture tour and then I came home and I recorded an album and and then you know he threw, throws in 10 or 12 other things and you know on the face of it you think it's boastful I mean a person could think it's boastful and in the early days of Ananda when Swami was less his his reality was less clear to people sometimes people thought he was boasting But at the end of all of that, he would always just say, you know, I lifted my consciousness to the spiritual eye. I tuned myself to master. I thought, I can't do this, but he can. And that's that's not uh, like a... He's not being clever when he says that. Sometimes people will say that, but it's really... um, It's not like... It's not so much like I channeled God. It's like I channeled God. (laughs) Very different emphasis for the same statement. Because at the end of those recitations, what he's always said to us is that he's expressing to us a principle. And that principle is that God can do anything. And he always expresses to us also that this is not really hard to do. You know, and our little ego selves, because we do block the flow, always imagines that it is. And so what he's just trying to do to us over and over again is to get us to see that, no, this is not difficult. This is your true nature. And then coming back to where I was speaking earlier about all of us being leaders, I was remembering in his Swamiji's book, Art as a Hidden Message. Um, It was a very interesting class when we taught that, when I studied that myself really deeply in order to teach it. Because 
essentially what Swami says in that book is that you have to become a creative artist before you can become a liberated saint. And he didn't, he didn't quite say that exactly, but it was very, very close to it. Because what he was saying is the nature of God is to be creative, servicefully creative, not self-indulgently creative. A lot of people do what you would call subconscious art, which is art that is entirely engaged in expressing themselves and not necessarily engaged in communicating to others, reaching out from a greater reality to a greater reality, but is vaisha in its nature, which is just, I'm going to do what I want and I'm going to enjoy it. Swamiji said he was very distressed when he heard Master say that most art is vaisha, which means I'm doing it because I enjoy doing it, rather than I'm doing it out of the principle of the desire to share, which is what the kshatriya is. But you, you need to become creative like the creator is creative. In other words, we have to become like God. And I don't know if that really means that everybody goes through a period and, you know, in some incarnation in which they're a creative artist. That's sort of what he implied in that book, which was very interesting. It's definitely true that our path, interestingly, I mean, our avatar was a creative artist. You don't have that example. Not all saints are like that. I think it's just a matter of temperament, but many are. Master wrote poetry, Master wrote music. Um, and then you have Swami who comes after him. So Master even painted a picture he describes in mastering that, the art fa- form of painting to paint the picture of Lahiri Mahashaya. He describes that story. But uh, Swami Kriyananda then sets the next example of just a tremendous commitment to creative arts. It's like, it's like the Dwapara Yuga version of being dedicated to God, whereas the Kali Yuga version was that everything in you was suppressed and any kind of self-expression was suspected of being ego-affirming. But what he's trying now is to turn us into a completely other reality that you don't affirm the ego by suppressing it. You affirm, um, I mean, you don't overcome the ego by suppressing it. You overcome the ego by not allowing it to be a block for the divine flow. You see how different that is? You genuinely renounce it. You don't merely hide from it. So in this lesson, when he's talking to us about how to be an employer, which is the context of these lessons, he's really talking about how to serve others by leading with your consciousness. Because when we think about this, you think about um, uh, Yogi Ramya, who was the, one of the few mentioned in Autobiography of a Yogi that Master said was a fully liberated soul. And Yogi Ramya had a, had a completely humble role in life. He was a disciple of Ramana Maharshi. He had surpassed his guru, although Ramana Maharshi, I think, was a Jivan Mukta, so it becomes a little bit of a moot point. But he was fully liberated. Swami Kriyananda spent four days with him in India. Yogananda spent you know, time with him, and he said, if I'd spent another half hour in his company, I could never have brought myself to leave India again. I mean, it's a remarkable statement. I mean, who knows what... One can only imagine the exchange of vibrations that takes place between such souls. And even Swami Kriyananda spending four days with this man, you know, in his little hut, in his little village. And he was doing apparently nothing in terms of any great mission to the world. He lived in this little village. He scarcely even taught the villagers. They just considered him an ordinary villager like themselves. And he even said when he did talk to them, he would just talk to them about ordinary things like crops and weather and food and so on. Everything about him was interiorized. But Swamiji's natural question was, 
with all your spiritual greatness, shouldn't you be doing more? Um, And then the yogi replied, well, God has done what he wanted to do through this body. Meaning that there's nothing in me that blocks. I would would fulfill any... um, any karma, any job that God gave me to do, but this is the God job he's given me to do. But to imagine then that he was not in any way uplifting, blessing, or sharing with the world is not true. Because he was serving entirely on the, on the, vibrate, on the realm of consciousness. And we also have to understand that consciousness is not limited by space, especially not by space or by time. Consciousness reaches out in every direction. I I understood that Master once said, when he chants Om, that instantly a blessing is received everywhere on earth. You know, that that in the same moment that he offers that Om vibration, it's, it's, um, it's transmitted everywhere. And remember the story of Master and Rajasi Janakananda. Rajasi is there meditating on the beach and he's in a very deep state of cosmic consciousness and Master's walking with another disciple and he comes close and he says, we must be very careful not to disturb him. You have no idea what blessings are brought to this work, meaning the work, Master's mission to the world, when even one disciple meditates so deeply. And everybody else is running around doing mailing lists and you know events and all the things that we do, which we're doing for the sake of others, but we're also doing for ourselves. But this man is serving in the most profound way because he's projecting his consciousness out and that consciousness is lifting everyone. In fact, Rajasi for a time ran a meditation group and Master said, oh, close it. You know, there's no point in your running a center anymore. Swamiji said when he was first at Mount Washington and was given responsibility for the magazine, he thought, well, Sister Gyanamanta, she's very wise and advanced. She could write articles for the magazine. She sort of wrote, he wrote and solicited her to write magazine articles and he, he gradually learned from Master that, that that kind of work was behind her. You know, to, to merely inspire through words was behind her. Now she inspired entirely through her consciousness. So all of us find ourselves in a progressive position, which is we are still actively engaged, for the most part, doing many things. I mean, we have different roles and we are in different stages of life different periods of life or different actual stages of life. And, um, but all of us are progressing from some stage of karmic limitation toward a stage of absolute freedom. And we have whatever properly assigned duties are given to us, whether it's you know, working within the context of the ashram, working outside of the ashram, being retired, um, whatever it might be. We still have these outside duties that have been given to us by God. You know, the Gita talks about all these different levels of duties. But above all, what all of us are cultivating at this point, through whatever work we're doing, is we're trying to cultivate the right consciousness. And success or failure in our work is really determined by the kind of consciousness we have. And then secondarily by the kind of work we do. There's that story that Master tells of when they were working very hard, I think, to well, to complete Lake Shrine, I think it was, as Durga Mata writes in her book about Master, she talks about how Master was always in such a hurry to get things done, and it would often frustrate them because he would make them do things faster than they really wanted to do them. And Durga said, it just seemed so unnecessary. But then she, looking back, she said, he knew how short his life was going to be. 
And he knew that he only had, had very little time and he had a great deal to do, so he just had to push through it all in retrospect. She saw that. And so in the midst of that, they were working, I think, very hard to finish Lake Shrine. And one day, a very key person in the project just didn't show up for work. And the next day when he came back, Master started to upbraid him. You know, why were you not here yesterday? And the disciple said, sir, I was meditating. And Master said, oh, why didn't you say so? You know, just like if, the, if you were called to meditate, then everything else you were doing doesn't matter because that's all we're really doing anyway. Now, of course, you really have to be called to meditate. I remember in the very early years of Ananda when there were a lot of people who, whose idea of spirituality was I'm, I'm irresponsible and I call it spiritual. I'm lazy and I call it spiritual. Um, so Shivani, who was working in the garden at that time and running the garden... And, you know, it's, it's a hard project because the plants are no respecter of persons. They have to be watered. They have to be taken care of. They have to be harvested. If a frost is coming, you have to work all night to get everything in. You can't just feel this way or that way. And Giovanni was expressing immense frustration at people coming to the garden and saying, Krishna wants me to go to the river today. <laughs> And just how she was asking for advice from Swamiji on how to deal with this. She said, people are more important than things, but aren't some things more important than people's egos? That was her question. And Swamiji very carefully said, yes, but you should be sure that you can really tell the difference before you take a stand, he said. (laughs) Cautioning her that her ego not be the one who was responding. But in any case... We are busy. And we need to be busy in a godlike way. And the most salient characteristic of the divine is unconditional love, constant giving, and a desire to uplift. I mean, that's what characterizes a saint, isn't that so? You think about a saint, of course, his consciousness or her consciousness is profoundly refined. I mean, they really have a refined awareness to give us But what characterizes is just this state of constant giving. In the book I wrote about Swamiji, I included this story of a time, this was in the 70s, when Swamiji came down with a terrible flu. And it was was so early on that his, his entire house was just what is now the living room of Crystal Hermitage, that dome, and what is now an enclosed room where Lalita has her office up there with, we call it the Juliet window, where you can open the window into the living room and have you play the role of Juliet into the living room. It was an open loft, and his bed was up there. And because it was a dome, even if though the bed was slightly hidden by a balcony railing, nonetheless, it was all in the same room. And he was very ill, and he was lying in bed, and he had a very high fever, And uh, he was literally panting because the fever was so high, it was making it hard for him to breathe. And a few of us were there. Swamiji, even when he's ill, he sort of has people around and partly just to pass the time. And um, somebody, I think think we were reading a very bad novel to him. I think we were reading some book that was very badly written and he was trying to edit it from his sickbed as we went along. But, um, But he was really sick. And there was a knock on the door and I went down to open the door, and this man was there who, in a very emotional state, started saying you know, through the screen door, I have to talk to Swami, I have to talk to him right now. And I, being more protective of Swami than interested in this person, went outside, shut the door, and said, you just can't see him today, he's terribly sick. 
is an awful fever, and this man was saying, I must see him, I absolutely have to talk to him now. And even though the door was closed, and we were talking very softly, all of a sudden I hear Swami's voice, who's there? He said, let him in. (laughs) And then we came in, and Swami just said, I'll be right down. And he got right up from his sitbed, he put his bathrobe on, he went and stood in the hallway and talked to this man, after, you know, 10 minutes, I said, would you like to come in the living room and sit down? And Swami said, I'm just like this. I'm fine. Just brush me off like that. During the whole conversation, he was perfectly strong. He had no trouble breathing. He stood without any support. There wasn't the slightest sign of weakness in him. He just did what needed to be done. And when the man was satisfied because he had a personal need that he felt had to be met, and, you know, went on his way with Swami's blessing some 20 minutes later. Swami went back upstairs, took off his bathroom, got back into bed, and then proceeded to pant. (laughs) It was like he was really ill, but someone needed him, and just completely, one, he transcended the illness, and two, he just wasn't going to consider. I remember him instructing me when I worked as his secretary, and he reprimanded me. He said, you mustn't ever make anyone think that my convenience is more important than their welfare. He said, we may not always be able to give people what they want, but they must always feel that we would certainly give it to them if we could. And he also said, you know, my welfare is not, my, my comfort is not more important than their well-being. He said, that's not how I feel. And then he, you know, kindly to me said, I understand what's motivating you, but it's wrong. If you're going to represent me, you have to represent me as I would represent myself. And you know, so of course I I learned a great deal from him from that. But that's how the divine behaves. And so in everything that we do, if we're going to be leaders, we have to have that reality that we're just here to uplift and to give and not let the ego block that flow of energy for any reason at all. And it also, it makes all of our work much more interesting. Because whatever small thing we're doing doesn't, is no, no longer small. Because it's always an opportunity to project energy and consciousness. Among other things, that's why I really like to cook. I mean, I like to cook for, I don't, I'm cooking for myself, I'm indifferent to, but I like to cook for the community. Um, I, that was the first job I had at Ananda. That's how I started in with Ananda, was cooking for the community. And I like it because it's interesting, you know, it's, it's, it's absorbing to do it, but it's very concrete and, relatively speaking, simple. You don't have an enormous mental complexity that you have to work with, so it's a very um, easy way to work with vibrations. One, because you're literally infusing what you're cooking with vibrations, um, but but uh, yes, that's part of it. But also it's just the nature of it. You're just making something that you're going to give away. And so the whole flow of cooking um, is just a, a, an opportunity to give. You sort of put forth this crescendo energy. It comes to a hole and you literally carry it out and hand it to people. And then they take it in. I mean, what, it's just so marvelously concrete. And then it's done. Everybody's got it. You're finished like that. You don't have to wait for the result. Um, but you know the ma- uh, master used to like to cook. Swamiji said he used to like to cook because it was the same thing. It was a way of, to give people vibrations. Swamiji used to cook, um, not perhaps as much, but he used to cook for us at different times. He would spend more time in the kitchen. It's sort of like it's 
something that is he's not he doesn't he's not interested anymore. He doesn't do it. But he would he would cook from time to time or help cook. It was really great fun when he would do that. And of course, it was wonderful. I remember also I wrote this in the book when uh, this uh, woman saint who lives somewhere up in the North Bay sent to Swamiji a bowl of kheer. And uh, a kheer is an Indian dessert. And a man brought it over to Swami's kitchen, but there was no one around, so he just set it in the kitchen, in the, in the refrigerator, intending to tell someone later what it was and where it came from. Swamiji found it in the refrigerator, put his spoon into it and tasted it, and said, this was made by a saint. And he had no idea where it had come from, but he, he, he tasted the vibrations in it immediately. And then it, it turned out, of course, that it was true. Interesting, right? Just one more on cooking is another story in the book I told was when I was cooking with this other woman and I tended to be very protective because I had a very high standard and she just didn't know how to cook very well at that time. Since then she's learned, but that time she didn't. But just out of her devotion to the situation, she wanted to cook two of the main dishes for that meal. And it was an awkward moment for me because I didn't want her to do it, because I was protecting the quality of the meal, but because the, the request was so direct, there was no way to finesse it. It absolutely, I had to say yes. There was no possible way I could say no, so I said yes. And then, you know, just we went about our business. And the result, in, in, in objective terms, at least in my objective terms, was not as good as I could have made it. But that was the meal I put on the table in which Swamiji held the spoon in his hand, didn't touch anything on the table, didn't even put his spoon into the food, looked at me and said, this is the best meal you've ever cooked. (laughs) And I said, sir, we did it all together. He said, I know, it's the best meal you have ever cooked. I mean, how much more direct can you be? You know, your consciousness was correct and therefore this is correct. Now, that's how you help people and that's how you lead people. And especially when we have real responsibilities, we simply can't shirk that. We can't shirk it on any level. We can't shirk it on the level of taking responsibility. You know, Swamiji often asks, who, um, I mean, I, Henry Ford, I think it was, who was asked once about, you know, what's the, just about qualities of leadership. And he said, you know, the hardest thing to find is people who will take responsibility. He said, if you find anyone who will take responsibility, he said, you have, to, you have to prize and cultivate that person above all. You know, to really just be willing to say, I'll do my best, I'll try to make this happen. And it's, it's not ego to do that. It's God takes responsibility, we have to take responsibility. It requires energy, it requires commitment, it requires discipline. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful quality. And the, the expansion of Ananda's work is entirely, entirely defined by the number of leaders. You know, it, it, it can expand as far as there is, there are qualified leaders. And that's, that's the limit of it. People who will take responsibility, have the right spirit, know how to do it. You know, and that doesn't mean you have, one has to be a solitary genius entrepreneur. It just really means that you're willing to take responsibility. And then everything can grow at that point. So Swamiji, in, in this book, starts talking about the principles of leadership as there. Oh, and there was one more thing on this, which I mentioned briefly in the visualization that we were doing. Um, in the book that Sarah Cryer wrote, the name of which escapes me, something about community, 
life in a community or community, reflections on community life or something like that. And she wrote a book based on interviews. She interviewed a lot of people who had been part of Ananda in the early years, and then she very skillfully edited those into articles. She's extremely talented at that. And two different people in their conversation with Sarah, partly for humorous effect. Swamiji often talks about some of the great epics of India and so on. He said, because the Mahabharata and the Ramayana were an oral tradition and the storytellers would go from village to village and tell and retell these stories. He said a lot of exaggerations and things set in just because it had humorous effects and it worked for the storytellers. And so they would embellish a little bit because their audiences would enjoy it more. So uh, both of these people I know were also making the statement partly because they were trying to describe how they felt. And in both cases, it was Swamiji giving them an assignment and then them having the feeling that he just sort of waved goodbye and wished them good luck. And then they talked about sort of having something responsibility for something that was just huge that they they had bitten off more than they could chew and then they had to chew it. Um, in both cases, when Swamiji read that, he, he called those individuals on the phone and, and did not take it lightly, but very strongly said, I never abandoned you. Just like that. I never abandoned you, he said. He said, my consciousness was always with you. And it's very interesting. And um, the way he wrote about it later, that he, at the time, that time he hadn't articulated, but I think it's in a place called Ananda in the book later when he talks about leadership. He talks about his way of leading has always been to project consciousness and even, even specifically to project ideas, you know, project thoughts. What, when Master said... I, my words are registered in the ether and they shall move the West. I mean, what do you think he's doing? He, he's, he, he was gone soon after. But the thoughts were registered in the ether and therefore those who wanted to tune into him would receive those thoughts because they were waiting in the ether to be received. Swamiji even wrote recently that the whole Back to the Land movement in the 60s, I mean, in 1950, what is it, 1948, whenever he, that garden party was, 49, Master planted in the ether that there were going to be all these little communities. And then what? 15 years later, you know, all the young people in America, all these bright, educated young people are all rushing out to form communities all over the place. Where did that come from? Swami just stated that was the fruit of Master's planting that thought in the ether. And of course, many of those ideas were scattered and not um, enduring, but everything begins, you know, with a lot of energy that gradually sifts itself down. And the mere fact that that wave happened, where did that wave come from? Master said, I'm planting my thoughts in the ether and they shall move the West. And people were reading Autobiography of a Yogi and thinking in new ways. That's how Master's influence through consciousness and even through specific ideas. And so Swamiji has made it clear to us that the ideas are in the ether and they're for us to, to pick up and move on. And that's why we always talk about when we're doing things, try to tune in. Try to ask what's trying to happen. Don't just think, what do I want? What do I like? But what's really trying to happen here? What, which way is this trying to go? And what we're trying to tune into is, of course, God's will. But even more specifically, Master's will, Swami's uh, creative inspiration from Master, And it's just out there 
to be drawn in if we ourselves are living our lives from that orientation. Where are ideas going to come from? They're universal. And so Swamiji was saying to these two individuals, and he he, um, made them change the book, he said, I was always there. And, you know, both succeeded admirably in the projects that they did because consciously or unconsciously, they were doing exactly that. They were receiving inspiration from somewhere and they were really receiving it from him through this project by their inherent attunement. I certainly had that feeling, which I shared at the time, when David and I moved here in 1987 and in 1990, we bought our community in 1989 and I think we dedicated it the following summer. Swamiji was there in the summer of 1990. So we'd been here, you know, not quite three years and we'd had the community for one year. And Swamiji was in the community and we had this big dedication celebration and he stood up and spoke. Before he spoke, I spoke. And it was partly because he was sitting right there. It made it so vivid to me it, and it had been an undercurrent um, uh, that, that hadn't really crystallized in my mind because now we've been here for, you know, nearly 25 years. But then we were somewhat new at this whole position of uh, the whole concept of having an urban community in the way that we do in this temple and all of it. It was just beginning to come into form. Ananda had been experimenting with this form for six or seven years but it really hadn't coalesced. Um, we were just beginning to coalesce, and I mean collectively as a community. And David and I were, were part of that energy that was bringing it to a focus. And I was just standing there looking out over the green and you know, a few hundred people celebrating this uh, community. Um, and I had the most um, tangible feeling of being on a track, you know, and having... In this, in this chapter, Swami talks about going to Disneyland with that friend. And he was, it was, he was the father of a family. And when they took the little boat ride. Where, I don't know if you remember, you're on water and you're in these little boats and you sit in the little boats and you have a steering wheel that seems to work. And your little boat goes in a lot of places. And Swami waved merrily to this man from his boat and the man wasn't able to respond because he was too busy steering his boat. After all, he had his family in the car, in the boat with him. You know, he had to maintain his position. And only later when he realized that they were on a track the whole time and steering was a complete illusion, you know, he was um, big enough to laugh at himself. But it's such a distinct impression um, of Swamiji that, that we were on a track and we, we played it out ourselves but we never were in charge of what was happening. We were just tuning into where it was going and I, I felt it was a wonderful feeling, just a wonderful feeling without um, knowing where it was coming from as much as it, uh, that we had intuitively responded correctly, that's what I'm trying to say and then it was given to us to understand what we had done. But that's always true. That's why Swami can stand up there and say, look at all these things that have been done. Isn't it, isn't it amazing? I knew I couldn't do it, but I just asked Master and look what he did. Because he feels the same way. He just feels like he's on a track. He's riding a train and he's decorating the inside of the car. But he's not really laying the rails or even providing the engine. Badura had a, a dream like that once. I can't remember all the details, but in essence he was on a big sailing ship an old-fashioned sailing ship, and there was a lot of other people from Ananda on the ship, and it was a huge storm, and the boat was being, you know, 
toss from side to side and the water was coming over and the wind was whipping the sails and he had a hold of the big wheel and he was really working hard to, you know, to keep this thing like this. And then suddenly he turned around and in the back of the ship there was no storm at all. It was just sunny and calm. And Swami was just sitting there sort of like, I think just reading a book, you know, just really relaxed, <laughs> you know. And he could sort of see maybe it's not exactly as it appears to me. But you see, this is the energy as a leader that you need to give people. You need to really communicate to them what we're really doing. And when you can hold that consciousness, you, you, you automatically become a leader. Nobody has to give you a position. You don't have to have a title because you have, you're, you're, you're in the magnetic position of putting into the situation what needs to be given to it. I remember when we were working on a, a project at Ananda Village and there was this one individual involved who had something to contribute but was more conscious of their desire to be considered important in the project and also a somewhat misplaced belief that they were the only person capable of doing certain things and that really everything had to pass through their hands or else disaster would ensue. It was a mixed reality because, in fact, the person did have a certain ability that it was better to get it into the flow, but that, but that ability was so complicated by that person's egoic involvement in their ability that most people tried to work around them instead of working through them. Just what Swami said, it just wasn't worth the energy of working through them. And that person, I was the, in charge at that point, and that person came to me and basically demanded that everything go through them. You know, just, you must tell everyone it has to go through me. And I said, um, you know, First of all, I don't have that power. People are too individualistic. Even if I declared that, people will only go through you if they find you beneficial. So it's not a question of my making it a rule. I said, you must make yourself magnetic so that people will want to ask for your help. You know, it was basically an impasse because they never succeeded in making themselves magnetic and I wasn't willing to insist. So it, it, it didn't work very well, but... If you become magnetic, you don't have to make a rule. Oh, there's another thought here that I want to put out before I take a break. When Swamiji was writing his book on supportive leadership, Swamiji had often commented in the early years, very early years of Ananda, he would sort of say that, you know, Master never really organized Mount Washington, that Master had Swamiji organize the monks and People said, well, well, we'll never get things organized as long as Master's here. It's, you know, it's got to be like this. And so we just sort of heard all those thoughts. And just because he was just young and didn't really know himself, and then after Master passed, the form of things began to change, he just sort of accepted that thought without really questioning it one way or another. But then when he started writing books about leadership and he just sort of meditated on the subject more deeply, I remember him coming to us and saying, you know, Master... Master was um, deeply involved in the organization of Mount Washington. He had it perfectly organized. He knew exactly what he was doing. But it was organized through magnetism. It was never organized through rules. He just created the magnetism that held it in the right pattern. And, And lesser people have to create rules to hold it in the right pattern. But Master, Master held it in the pattern entirely through magnetism. And it was everybody's relationship to him. But even more than that, it was projecting out the right magnetism. And to a very large extent, Swamiji writes about that in here, that's how Ananda has been organized. Because he has chosen leaders who have the right spirit. 
and have the same spirit. And he comments, and it's, we take it so for granted, we don't really even think about how unusual this is, but Ananda worldwide is one entity with one vibration. You can go from here, you can go to Pune, you can go to Delhi, you can go to Rome, you can go to Assisi, you can go anywhere in America, and everywhere you go, it's like there's no transition. You might not know everybody's name, but you're immediately in the same reality. It has exactly the same energy. Even when, the, when you don't understand the language. Years ago, uh, when David and I went with Swamiji to Italy, it was 1982. And this was before Ananda had its own established ashram there. And there was a group of people in Pisa. And they had a, a, a meditation group and they had managed to acquire some old hotel sort of out from town. And David and I did not speak a word of Italian, which we, we still don't speak Italian, but having been there a lot of times, we can understand a lot. So we're not quite as lost as we were on that very first trip. For me, that was my first trip out of America. I didn't even have a passport before that trip. So the whole thing was very unusual for me. And eight, in 1982, a lot fewer people in Italy spoke English. Now English has invaded the country. So the language barrier was immense. And uh, also we were just Swami's travel companions. We didn't have any position and we didn't know anybody. So we were often hosted by others. And then he would be taken off in one direction. We would go off in another. And more than once our host spoke no English and we spoke no Italian. So it was, a, it was fun, but it was really like, where are we? Where are we going? They couldn't, you know, they would turn around and tell us, we're going here, we're going to do that. And it just meant nothing to us. We were just contentedly <laughs> allowing whatever it was to happen and just waiting to see. Um, and so they took us on this very long car journey out to this remote place, to this sort of half-occupied half hotel, and then led us up, you know, through, we parked, we walked through this long dusty place, we went through these long hallways, we went up these stairs, we sort of went through these little places, and we finally go into this small room, and there's an altar with all these masters on it, and they're singing Door of My Heart in Italian. And it was so extraordinary, because it was like we traveled so far, we hadn't traveled any distance at all. And it wasn't merely that we recognized the pictures and knew the chant. It was that we were just back into our exact vibration. Because Swamiji has organized Ananda through magnetism. And, and brought everybody into the same vibration and therefore, we can just cross over like this. You know, there's, I mean, there's friendly competition. There has always been, especially when Ananta was in Sacramento, they called themselves the Valley Tribe, and they called this the Kingdom of Palo Alto, and it would just go back and forth all the time. I was, um, when Ananta McSweeney was in charge there, and Gary McSweeney was our community manager here, and he had to come into my apartment, our apartment, to repair something. And he saw there, I was reading this book um, by Gayatri Devi, I think is her name, and she was a, a Maharani from Jaipur. And the name of the book was A Princess Remembers. <laughs> so the next thing I know is I get a note from Ananta where Gary has told Ananta that Asha's reading her own autobiography. <laughs> I confronted Gary about it. He said, blood is thicker than water. <laughs> <laughs> it was just the long, ridiculous, but it was all very good-natured, which in a very real sense is an indication of, you know, of how we really are, because such things could be true. 
but they're so untrue that they can be the, the uh, endless material for comedy. We often joke, sometimes when the colony leaders have been together with Swami, there's been discussions about where he's going to go and what he's going to do next. And often we'll sort of start this little bidding war. You know, like Los Angeles will provide a house, we'll provide a house and a car, and so-and-so will provide this. And, you know, just like bidding to see if we can get Swami to come and live with us. We'll make it better for you. But again, it's all because there's really none of that. It, it, and it's all, it all is attributable to the leadership, to Swamiji as the leader and the spirit that he's put through it. But because he's always thought in terms of himself, sets the example, and then everyone who really wants to be able to be, have any position of responsibility has to respond in the same way. And then you have really a remarkable result, which can be replicated anywhere if people follow the same rules. And that's what he's talking about in this lesson. So let's take a little break, and then we'll work specifically on the lesson. Um, uh, Chidambar reminded me of another aspect of the dedication of the community when I was feeling that sense of being guided by Swamiji. He reminds me, he reminded me what Swamiji said, and what Swamiji said is he talked about Babaji's role in the founding of the community. That we're doing that we were doing this because it was Babaji's will that these communities get started, and he said Babaji is very pleased that this community has been founded. I mean, that was very um, nice for all of us to have a sense that we were really acting out Babaji's plan. And then Swamiji talked about about you know these these words are written in the autobiography and they're written in the path, and we actually say them every week in the festival. But every so often, the implications of something come to us. Jesus, Jesus for the West, Babaji for the East are responsible for the spiritual evolution of the planet. The time has come when the East and the West are now going to unite. Jesus, in the autobiography it says, Jesus and Babaji together have worked out a plan for the evolution of the planet through, you know, Dwapara Yuga and, and how it's going to come about. So then they send this messenger and its master, and master says over and over again, go forth, you know, north, south, east, and west, and found these little colonies on plain living and high thinking. Like, where do we think master got that idea? Why do you think he advocated it? Because this was part, is part of the plan that Jesus and Babaji have. And they are very aware of the difficulty in materialistic times for, you know, small, for devotees to hold these you know, newly awakening ideas in a society that is not yet you know, overall attuned to these. So the idea of having people band together in small colonies, it's, it's very practical. You know, to me, it's, a, it's amusing to me because you watch the prejudices of the mind. You know, we think of Babaji as the Himalayan yogi. You know, he just wears a, a loincloth, his chest is bare, he has a danda, he moves about by the power of thought. He's way up in the inaccessible Himalayas. And we don't think of him as being interested in our little apartment complex. You know, our little apartment complex seems so like not part of the world he lives in. I know there was another um, similar thought. This young uh, man came to Swamiji in India and and said that he had been in the mountains, high in the mountains, and by himself on a a spiritual um, pilgrimage alone. And he had an encounter with a, a, a yogi who materialized, who he, who he felt was he thought was Babaji, and that Babaji had given a message for Swamiji. This was a few years ago in India, and Babaji, the message sent 
I'm very pleased with the work you're doing, especially the television shows. <laughs> and my little mind thought, well, it, this sounds really dumb when you think about it. Does Babaji know about television? <laughs> you know? It's like we have these primitive concepts, very limited concepts. Of course he knows about television. I mean, what do you think? The technology advances? Where does the idea of television even come from? It probably came from Babaji, probably planted it in the mind of whoever invented it. But in other words, if they've planned the spiritual salvation of this age, that means that all these little things that we're doing, they're involved in, really involved in, and we're acting as their instruments. It's really a very interesting thought, isn't it? And Master himself, um, I think this was more in Durgamata's book. I can't remember exactly where I read it, but Master himself often talked about his power coming from Sri Yukteswar or from Babaji. Now, we think of him as being the final source, but he didn't think of himself that way. He thought of himself as he was an instrument of Jesus and Babaji. That's why he was sent. And even if he equaled their consciousness, nonetheless, he was playing the part of a disciple. And he, he, he manifested the fact that the ego Yogananda was not the source of anything. It was the power that flowed through him through his own gurus, through the power of God behind them. And all of that makes the project of humility not a project. It's like you just can't take personal credit. How could you possibly take personal credit for this? And that's again where it gets to be lots of fun because you can do really great things with just total childlike enthusiasm and you don't have to be really worried about it because you never did it anyway. And as someone said to me, they were quoting me, which I thought was a really good quote, said, I always feel when people compliment me, they're complimenting the part of me that didn't get in the way. In other words, the part of me that wasn't there. So they're complimenting what they saw, but they're actually complimenting the the non-self. Because if the self was engaged in it, then it wouldn't have really been worthy of a compliment. (laughs) And then I love that people always say, yes, but somebody had to be the instrument. All right, all right, thank you. Credit goes to God. You know, it's amazing to me how often people will still insist that on some level you take personal credit. No, you don't have to take personal credit. Haridas had the best line of all. Yeah, something inspiring happened and I got to be there. (laughs) And I love that because it's just as much fun, you know, it doesn't matter which side of the equation you're on. That's where it's really happening. Joy is the best teacher. Okay, so any other questions or thoughts before... Um, I'm obviously this this uh, lesson's going to last another week because we haven't even really touched it. He has 16 marvelous points of leadership, and we haven't spoken about them. So the beginning of this lesson, and again, these are like um, these lessons are really big, and he reminds me again. He reminds us again in this lesson of uh, because of the way he talks about things of the the. Um, elevated origin point from which he, he wanted to write these. I, I, a few lessons ago, he was talking about the cadence of speech and the cadence of writing and the, the magnetism you put into writing. And he made the statement that even in the writing of these lessons, I'm trying to transfer a, vib- a vibration of ex- success or a, you know, the capacity for su- the magnetism of success by planting the vibration of success thoughts into the words that I'm writing. And that just re- reminds me of Master's Whispers from Eternity where he says, you know, these poems 
through these poems, they were God-inspired and beyond ink and paper, you know, is the presence and power of God and you need to be able to penetrate beyond the dense matter of ink and paper and feel the vibrations behind it. The, the God-empowered word-by-word power. And I w- so I've been reading this and sometimes Swamiji repeats thoughts in certain ways and there's a kind of repetitious, I was noticing it more in this lesson than some of the others, a kind of repetitious rhythm at times. And I just sort of feel him just kind of trying to transfer us these understandings. And one of the things he starts with this lesson about, and he's trying to undo certain wrong attitudes, and he specifically says that America is, is way ahead of India in the attitudes he's trying to uh, establish in the beginning of this lesson. So we have to remember that he, he was inspired to write this in India, where tradition is stronger, where hierarchy is stronger. And he says, I don't suppose it's still the custom in India when the boss arrives for everybody to stand up to greet him. But uh, in the 50s when Swamiji was there, where India being intensely conscious at that time, especially of social status and position and caste, you know, all of those things were acted out. And so Swamiji is really um, saying here what we already see much more profoundly in America is this a new paradigm in which we're not thinking so much in terms of hierarchy as we are thinking in terms of cooperative effort. Um, And even though we're sort of inclined that way in our country and in this part of the country especially, um, it doesn't hurt to make it really not merely just a form but something deeply real. I'm so amused by a lot of the retail stores that don't refer to employees but they talk about team members, you know. They They don't call them customers, they call them guests. You know, or, you know the guests, guests so and so, and of course it's it's a fun affirmation and it's a nice way to look at it. Sometimes it's just transparently ridiculous because there's nothing behind it except for words. But the but the it's a reflection of trying to find this new kind of energy. And what Swamiji is talking about in this lesson, also, which is very important, is he he's really trying to explain to us. And we'll go more into this the next time we meet how um, you have that spirit, but the fact of the matter is leadership is still always key. And that you, you, you have to be a leader. You have to have the magnetism of a leader. And he even talks in his 16 points, you know. People need to know that you're in charge. Sometimes people think the way to lead is not to ever be the leader, but you have to be the leader because, because the ideas come through individuals and... And the whole thing has to be made cohesive in one direction. But one does it by having an understanding of how success is really accomplished. And the beginning point of that, of course, is that, that whoever has the responsibility sees it as a position of service and not as a position of importance. Swamiji just tells us that simple story from his own early life in SRF when, when he was in charge of the monks and one of the individuals in SRF who himself had more of an old-fashioned attitude about leadership and power and position told him that he was riding in the back of the truck and the, that man said, well, you need to ride in the front of the truck. And Swami said, why? He said, because you're in charge, you're the leader. Swami said, all the more reason I should be in the back of the truck. That that kind of assertion of this is my position is not the right kind of assertion. Although sometimes it is. Sometimes it's important. You know, I know uh, 
uh, Swamiji is always, uh, I mean, he, he, he goes a certain distance, but then there's a point at which he will sort of maintain the dignity of his position. And he sometimes will say something, you know, that's not appropriate for you to do. You need to maintain the dignity of your position. And, and it's not that it's not an egoic thing at that point. It's just really that if one does have responsibility, one has to maintain an awareness of that and not do things that discredit you, you know, and cause people to not hold you in a respectful way. But coming back to what he's talking about here, um, he, he just talks about unity and diversity. And the whole... I, I was just going to reflecting for a minute. You know, America is such an amazing country. And all of us living in America here, and everyone listening to this on recordings lives in America, but America is the place that Master chose to start self-realization. And it's the place where Ananda started. And Swamiji has often said, really, there was no other country that it could have started, either movement. And I have often reflected that to what extent were the masters involved even in starting America because they had to be able to set the stage for this to happen. And the qualities of America, I was referring earlier to the fact that I never traveled outside of this country until 1982 when I was in my mid-30s. And I grew up in America. I, I used to live in the town of El Paso, Texas. So I actually did step out of the country into Juarez, Mexico, but I wouldn't really call that international travel, even though technically it was. But I never had any idea of the characteristics of America until I went outside of America. And then I began to appreciate quite a number of things. And Swamiji refers to this in here also. First of all, the fact that America has no history, really. And certainly no history to sort of stand up and be proud of. I first found that out when we went to Florence. And I found out that the Florentines had a sense of reflected glory because of all the great art that had been created there, you know, some centuries ago. That, you know, Michelangelo and others had lived there and done these great things and it happened in Florence and we're from Florence. And so there was like a a sense of pride and accomplishment merely because they lived in Florence. Even though from my American perspective self-evidently, it had absolutely nothing to do with them. But the fact that there was so much um, to be proud of behind them gave them an automatic sense of pride and also gave them a backward-looking direction. Swamiji talks here about India, about all the centuries of tradition, and he talks about the young man to whom he made a suggestion about his business. I think the specific thing had to do with using wood as a fuel, and wood was very much harder to come by in that situation now. Wood used to be common because it was a heavily wooded area. Now it was much harder to get wood. Swami suggested maybe they should think of doing it differently. Well, this is how my father and my grandfather always did it. Because the whole capacity to look backwards for so many generations and have all this force behind you caused people to look that way. And that was when I realized that in America we never look backwards. You know, we, we, we look backwards with a little bit of thought, you know, because people came here and there was nothing and then they made this country. But so many um, families don't go back very far at all because we're immigrants. So whatever traditions people came from, they were uprooted. And recently, more recently, there's been a kind of a movement to preserve the culture even once they come to America. And in this part of America, we've become bilingual 
in the sense that, you know, so many retail stores now have all their signs in Spanish. I mean, the assumption that a large part of the population will speak Spanish and not speak English, um, which will die, you know, is not necessarily a positive thing in the sense of the cultural unity, but that's beside the point. Um, but mostly people just left their traditions behind. My, my family, my husband's family, um, were uh, Eastern European Jews who came out at the time when it was really not a smart thing to be Jews, long before World War II, but from the um, Russian and other persecution of the Jews. And many Jewish families don't even have their own names because they arrived at Ellis Island and somebody asked them what their name was and they said some unpronounceable Polish something. And as I'm told, they were allowed to choose between whether they became Cohens or Levi's. And one of the reasons that there's so many, you know, Levi's and Cohens in the Jewish world is because they just left their names behind. Our family was Projector, which I could only imagine was just something that sounded a little bit like that. My family did a little research and tried to prove it was a real name, but I don't know whether it really was or not. It's hard to imagine. You know, it must have just sounded something like that, and so they wrote it down. Um, So not only do we not know, we have no village, We have no ancestors. The culture was completely cut off, and often even the name was changed, you know, just 50, 60, 70, 150 years ago. So there's just nothing to look back. You came with nothing, and you built it up. So that's the good news. I mean, that's the very good news in a real sense, because everything is taken just for what it is. It's a very Dwapar Yuga kind of country. And people also had to work together. Swamiji often talks about that, that in this country we had a cooperative spirit because people moved out onto the plains, onto the prairies, and they they couldn't do it alone. They had to work with other people in order to make it happen, to raise the barn, to have the crops, to to fight off the winter, to stand against the the marauding Indians if there were marauding Indians. And so it was built also into the culture that we help our neighbor and we work together, which we again just take for granted. And we don't realize that that's really an unusual characteristic. Then you have the reality of people just being able to arrive with absolutely nothing. And even though a certain kind of snobbery and pride of position is inherent to human nature, it's simply never been built into our country, the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence is an amazing document. We hold these truths to be self-evident, I mean, there's not even an attempt to explain them. To be, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal. I mean, we, we don't even have any idea what a revolution that was. Because at the time that document was written, it was not self-evident that all men were created equal. There were lords and there were commoners. There were high-class people and there were low-class people. There were servants and slaves and then there were wealthy people. It was not self-evident that all men are created equal endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that is, first of all, it's a magnificent piece of writing. I mean, or just I should say, incidentally, it's a magnificent piece of writing. But it was a total revolution. And that's been the foundation of our country all along, and everything else has followed from that. And everything that Swami's writing here about the nature of leadership and the nature of success all comes out of that. That's why this country has good karma. Because 
that is such a revolutionary divine principle. And even though, of course, it gets corrupted, still, that's the peak from which this, the entire country flows. And that's the idealism underneath it, which no matter how people behave, that really is what we're committed to here. And uh, that's why I was saying, I wonder sometimes, I asked Swami that, you know, did the masters create America in order that master would have a place to start self-realization fellowship? If you think about William the Conqueror in England, and, and of course, in truth, William the Conqueror and then his son Henry set in motion America because we took, we took a lot of our principles from Henry especially and from William that, that as Dwapar Yuga advanced became here because what the citizens in America who were English at the time were rebelling against was that King George was not honoring our rights. You know, but there was a feeling that we had those rights and then that the, the king was not honoring them. And so we fought against it, but the basic understanding had already been planted in us. And so that's that Dwapar Yuga understanding is what Swamiji is writing about at the beginning of this lesson. So I'm not going to go any farther. Next, next time. Yes. Just uh, uh, Lahari is commenting that Abraham Lincoln was a yogi, and that the the union was tested under the reign of Abraham Lincoln. Whether uh, you know a, a nation so constituted will endure or will be fractured, and that was the he had to come back and pick up the problem of slavery, which was really the the blot on the horizon. Although I know I've mentioned in here a couple of times, um, a Master said, Master actually said that the bad karma that America picked up was the obliteration of the Indians. And I, I had added to that. I've had to correct that. I've always added to that and slavery. But then Swamiji, I heard him comment once that Master never mentioned slavery. And um, Ram, after, who's, a, who's an American black man, after visiting Africa said, I never thought I would say this, but I'm really grateful for slavery. He said that a, that a, a portion of that race was brought out of Africa and planted in America. Certainly, they, it wasn't a very positive thing, he said, but the result of it was that the black people were um, planted somewhere else and allowed to have a, a branch of that race happen here and, and live as free people and then be able to go back and influence the other part of it. Very interesting, isn't it? Fascinating concept. I mean, I wouldn't presume to say that, but he was the one who could say it, and then I could say, isn't that interesting? Fascinating. All right. So now we will end, and in two weeks we'll meet again, and we'll do Lesson 15 again. Okay. Thank you all.